if anyone enjoys disciplining their children, there's something wrong with them. (laughs) But yet, we do it. In fact, we've been admonished to do so. There are numerous proverbs about the need for discipline. And Paul set before parents the challenge of balancing discipline with instruction while bringing up their children. And love demands that we discipline. Even God disciplines those he loves. We are warned, however, and promised that no discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So discipline is necessary, but it's not easy. In fact, everything about discipline is hard. It's hard to know when discipline is called for. It's hard to know what form discipline should take. It's hard to have the right attitude while disciplining, and we even wonder what that attitude should be. It's hard to know how severe to be with our discipline. It's hard to know how to respond after disciplining someone. These are hard questions. And many times we find ourselves having to discipline before we have adequately answered them all. The situation demands action now. So we discipline and hope for the best. No doubt all of us have had to deal with discipline one way or another. On the giving end or the receiving end. And while we generally think of discipline as something that takes place in the home, the Bible makes it clear that discipline is also to take place within the church family. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or more with you. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul reprimanded the Corinthians for not disciplining one who needed it. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife, and you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul said, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you've received from us. And then he added in verses 14 and 15, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy 
but admonish him as a brother. So there is no question that discipline is to take place in the church as well as in the home. And the same questions about attitude and severity and follow-up have to be answered in both places. Fortunately, Paul gives us some very practical advice about discipline from start to finish in our passage for consideration today. And while he is speaking with reference to church discipline, I think we can also find here guidelines for effective discipline in our homes. And Paul begins by reflecting on the proper attitude for discipline. We're picking up our study in 2 Corinthians, the second chapter, verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Now, we can't be absolutely certain about the situation Paul is addressing here. The older commentators generally believed he was talking about the man we read about in 1 Corinthians 5. Many new commentaries, however, indicate he may be referring to a ringleader of opposition against him in Corinth. Either way, someone had caused problems in the church that required discipline, and it had resulted in widespread sorrow. And that's where all discipline should begin. With sorrow, not with anger. Paul doesn't say he was mad at somebody in the church and everyone else was mad too. He says they had been made sorrowful. A brother had caused problems and had been in need of discipline. And that brought Paul and the entire church sorrow. They didn't want to discipline anyone. They didn't look forward to getting back at a troublemaker. They weren't mad at him. They were sorrowful. Their attitude was what my mom always expressed to me before a spanking. This is going to hurt me more than you. Now, I didn't believe it then, but I do now. Discipline causes sorrow for everyone. And it is out of a sense of sorrow that we should enter into it, not anger or revenge. That sorrow should then proceed to sufficient punishment, verses 6 and 7. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest Somehow, such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Again, the purpose of discipline is not to retaliate, to get even. It's to bring the offender to the place of repentance. The person who had been disciplined in Corinth 
had to be made to see that his behavior was unacceptable and needed to be changed. Now, the word used for punishment is a bit unusual. In fact, this is the only place it's found in the New Testament. It originally signified the enjoyment of rights and privileges of citizenship and then became used at the judgment assessed on an individual for the infringement of such rights. So the man had lost some of his rights and privileges because he had violated them. And the other members of the church family had punished him by taking away his rights as a member of their fellowship. Now, this seems harsh. And it is. But it's not nearly as harsh as allowing someone to assume he is right before God and the church and then having him discover on judgment day that he is to be punished eternally for his sin. So the punishment has to be severe enough to lead the offender to repentance if it's to be successful. It must not lead to what Paul calls excessive sorrow that overwhelms. The goal is restoration, not condemnation. The one discipline isn't to be made to feel hopeless, doomed, lost forever. He is disciplined in the hope that by it he might be brought to repentance. And whatever is necessary to accomplish that is sufficient. Now, for some, that may be quite a lot. For others, not much at all. I know I have one grandchild who required more than the others. And it caused Grandma and me a great deal of sorrow to see it. But it was worth it because he or she <laughs> turned out great. So it may take harsher discipline for one child than for another. Or a more drastic loss of rights for one individual than for another to accomplish what needs to be accomplished in discipline. But we must be careful not to so overwhelm anyone by discipline that they simply give up and think themselves worthless. Once we see signs of repentance, sorrow on their part for what they've done, we need to comfort them and their sorrow. And we bring punishment to an end by reaffirming our love for them in a way they can understand. Verse 8, wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Apparently, he had repented. Discipline had succeeded, and now it was time to reaffirm their love for him. Now, it is true that discipline itself was the result of love. If they hadn't loved him, they wouldn't have bothered to discipline him. But still, he needed an expression of love that was a bit easier to identify than discipline now that he was sorrowful for his actions. So Paul tells them to now overwhelm him with their love. 
discipline had come to an end. It was time to let him know he was forgiven and that he was still loved. This is a very important principle in all discipline and one that needs to be remembered when disciplining children. We must never be afraid to reaffirm our love after disciplining anyone. Now, I realize some think they have to stay mad after a spanking or whatever form of discipline was used in order to make a child know they really mean business. But I'm convinced that if a spanking is done properly, they will know you mean business. Something I read years ago may help accomplish that. Spank till they cry softly. If you're going to spank, make sure you carefully take them over the minimum threshold of pain. Don't just make them mad. I know there's dangers in saying that, and it's recorded for everybody now. I'm not promoting child abuse at all, not at all. I think spanking done properly is very effective and can be very effective. But don't just make your kids mad. I've seen, I've seen kids respond with a rebellious spirit because they were hit. We're not hitting someone. We're trying to paddle them. We're trying to create a little sting, a little bit of pain that makes them stop and say, something hurts. And when they're crying softly, you know you've reached that point. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm convinced that if it's done properly, when it's over, and they are experiencing sorrow, then it's time to comfort. Take your kids in your arms and smother them with love. Even cry with them if you feel like it. Don't discipline them and walk away mad or leave them to stew about it. Once you've accomplished the purpose, embrace them. That doesn't take away from the effectiveness of your discipline. It only makes it clear that you were acting out of love even while disciplining him. I think this is really important. I, again, I know it's, it's risky to even mention it. There's something else I'd like to suggest, something Marilyn and I agreed to before the first spanking in our home, and we did spank. Make sure the one who disciplines is the one who comforts. You know, don't you spank your child, and then let them go to mom or dad for comfort. If I did the spanking, Marilyn would refuse to comfort them. She would always send them back to me for comfort and vice versa. The same is true in the church. If we were to discipline someone, that person should not be allowed to seek comfort from anyone other than those who were involved in the discipline. If the elders should have to take action, it would be wrong 
for some other group in the church to side with the one disciplined and trying to counteract the discipline. Nor should another church welcome them with open arms before repentance comes. Again, this is very difficult, extremely difficult to practice, especially today with the multiplicity of churches. But it's biblical. It's the responsibility of the ones who initiate the discipline to bring it to a conclusion. And the successful conclusion of discipline is always forgiveness, comfort, and a reaffirmation of love. That is the purpose of discipline in the church and in the home. Paul then concludes his instructions here by reminding the Corinthians and us that all of discipline from start to finish is to be done in the presence of Christ. For to this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things, but whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul indicates that when he wrote them to initiate discipline, he was in effect testing their willingness to obey in all things. He knew discipline wouldn't be easy, but it had to be done. And they passed the test. Now he was asking them to make sure they had forgiven the individual they had disciplined as he had forgiven them. And to make certain forgiveness had taken place, he reminded them that Christ was watching. Christ told us we wouldn't be forgiven if we didn't forgive. So it was in the presence of Christ that Paul had forgiven, knowing that only by doing so could he be forgiven. And indeed, that is the key to both effective discipline and forgiveness. We must remain conscious of the fact that all we do is done in the presence of Christ. Paul says Satan is just waiting to take advantage of a bad situation. And that is true in homes as well as in churches. If he can get us to overlook our responsibilities in discipline... He can often get a hold on the one we neglect to discipline. Or, if he can make us unforgiving and bitter towards someone we discipline, he can get a hold on us. The only way to properly discipline anyone is to first remember that Jesus is Lord. 
and then do what he has commanded us to do in the way he has instructed us to do it. We must never forget that all we do is done in his presence. He sees our heart when we discipline. And he knows if we are obeying him or venting our anger. He knows if we're harboring bitterness or nursing grudges when we should be forgiving and comforting one who has been brought to sorrow for his ways. He is involved in all we do. We must never forget that. From the smallest discipline problems in our homes to major heresies and schisms in the church, Jesus is Lord. And we should seek to handle every situation as he would handle it if he were here in the flesh today. Now, of course, before we get too concerned about the speck in our brother's eye, we've got to deal with a log that's in our own. And it may be painful to take the log out. In fact, it may take discipline to bring us to sorrow for our ways before we will be willing to repent. But you can rest assured that as soon as you get to that point, Jesus will be there to forgive you and comfort you and reaffirm his love for you. And so will we. And so will we. In fact, if you are in need of forgiveness today, he is ready to grant it. And we are ready to affirm it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you with a sense of responsibility that's heavy. There is a need for discipline in our world. And it begins in the home. And it's reflected in the body of Christ in the church. We understand that people are sinful. We understand the nature of self-centeredness and the struggle to discern and what to do and how to get by with what we can get by and the struggles we see all around us. You discipline those you love. You discipline the, the entire world once with a flood. You've, in, you've disciplined nations with, with conquering hordes. You've disciplined societies with, with famines and fires. You've disciplined the church with times of unrest and struggle and warfare. And you've disciplined our homes with a breakdown of authority and, and great pain. 
so we take seriously the need for discipline. But Lord, it's not easy. It's hard. Give us courage. I'm so thankful as a church, there have been very few times when public discipline was called for. Because we have people who are willing to listen to your word and your spirit. And we have brothers and sisters to encourage and even confront lovingly that that help keep us on track. I'm so grateful for that. I pray you continue to guide us. Give us courage. Thank, Thank you for our elders and for their willingness to shepherd and to do things that sometimes are, it's not easy, but essential. And I pray for moms and dads, and I pray for our homes. Again, much of the breakdown in our culture follows the breakdown in the family. Dads have been relegated as unessential, and sometimes even moms are pushed in the background. Sometimes society at large or the state thinks they can raise our kids, but Lord, they can't. We need moms and dads who love you, who seek to follow you, who have the courage to do what you've called them to do. We ask you for that. We pray for our homes. We pray for healing. We pray for children who have been brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord that they may be equipped to do the same to the next generation. Thank you, Father, for setting this challenge before us. Help us to surrender to your Lordship. Help us to be what you've called us to be. That's my prayer in Jesus' name.